Over the last few months on Capture Store Repeat, we've spoken to guests from all around the world to hear experts shed light on the progress of carbon capture and storage. In this episode, we recap some of those insightful best bits that we had over the last season. And we first begin with a clip from our conversation with Olaf Karsted, who helped launch the Selpner CCS project, the first ever offshore CCS project developed to mitigate CO2 emissions. We then follow up with Tim Dixon of the IAGHG, who walked us through the importance of international partnerships and international forums, such as the G20, in driving CCS momentum. Over in the MENA region, we speak with Dr. Mahmoud Abuzara of the Global CCS Institute, who unpacked the current state of CCS in the region and what the upcoming COP28 presidency, which is hosted by the UAE, might bring. We then turned our attention to more technical discussions tied to innovations in CO2 storage with Dr. Alex Bump of the Gulf Coast Carbon Center, and then chat with Dr. Sarah Bonides of the International Energy Agency on what's needed to scale up CCS in time to reach net zero goals. How did the conversation around Selpner unfold as the project was being assessed, both from a business perspective and as a climate solution? This Our Common Future report, uh, Gro Harlem Brundtland became prime minister, introduced the CO2 tax and so forth. Uh, this became sort of the environment that we lived in. Uh, I think the thinking about uh, climate change probably came a little bit earlier in Norway than uh, in many other countries. And uh, this decision uh, that was made uh, about Sleipner, uh, the CO2 tax that Guru uh, Harlem Brundtland, our prime minister, uh, introduced, which was a quite high CO2 tax, it made uh, the Sleipner project profitable, even though it costs millions or millions of, or billions of kroner. Uh, Offshore, uh, so it's it's a mixture of climate change, uh, business, uh, but we shouldn't think that this was only business. It was business, but it wasn't only business. So it sounds like in in Norway, those conversations are never divorced. I think, as you mentioned, I think Norway has been always been a little bit ahead of the curve. Maybe can you speak to how the, let's say, the carbon tax influenced um, getting the project going? Um, the thinking about the CO2 injection at Sleipner started before the carbon tax was introduced, but and that was in 1991. But it has had been discussed for two or three years before that, and everyone expected it to be. Um, to come. We didn't know how big it would be and so forth, but uh, we expected that there would be a sizable CO2 tax, and it was. And when you did the calculations uh, for Sleipner, it came out as a fairly good idea also business-wise. You're painting a very uh, Almost a seamless journey, it sounds like, uh, to get to get uh, Selpner done. What were some of the obstacles that you faced? The obstacles, well, I, I think uh, building a CO2 capture uh, process plant offshore 
it's it's not incredibly difficult, I would say, but it's it's a sizable project. We had to build a, a platform for CO2 capture uh, apart from the rest of the uh, the field, and it was so big that uh, at the time when one there were two big modules to be lifted on board this platform. The biggest uh, module weighed uh, 12,000 tons. It was the biggest lift done offshore at the time. So it was a sizable big project. It's not, uh, and it, the costs were also quite, uh, quite large. But uh, otherwise, I would say with the support of the government, the support of the um, uh, most, at least most of the environmental uh, groups in Norway. And uh, the calculation that this was a fairly good business proposition as well. Of course, there were problems, but we had quite a lot of support. Uh, it's, it sounds <laughs> perhaps <laughs> incredible, but uh, uh, yeah, it sort of just worked out that way. Yeah. It does sound incredible, but it also makes it a little bit more clear why, you know, getting Longship, which is the new uh, Norwegian project that has a potential to store CO2 for neighboring countries that want to take on CCS. It, it makes it makes sense now why really Norway is leading the charge. So before Sleipner, there were there were carbon capture projects happening in North America. Unlike Sleipner, it wasn't for uh, capturing and storing for the purposes of CO2 mitigation, but needless, it, it, it was still an innovative new technology that ultimately we, we CCS, uh, kind of the seed in which CCS grew from is that. So the Terrell project, for example, in Texas, um, I think that was the first CC get well, carbon capture project that happened. Did your team turn to um, your counterparts in North America that were doing something similar? Uh, yeah, we uh, quite early, both, uh, yeah, everyone involved knew or eventually knew at least uh, about the, uh, in particular, the North American projects in the US and also in Canada. So, um, Quite early, we started to uh, go across the dam and uh, and uh, talk to these people. We uh, also, uh, yeah, we learned a lot from them on on specific issues having to do with uh, injection, corrosion, which is a problem sometimes in when you have mixed water and CO2. Uh, what type of reservoir you are injecting into and what could happen and so forth. And um, uh, eventually uh, people came over from uh, the US to uh, work with us on uh, a particular CCS projects. So yes, there was a lot of cooperation actually. Uh, I have mentioned uh, this thing in Norway, which is very 
peculiar to rest of the world, I think. It is the uh, very positive uh, attitude of the environmental groups. Uh, without that, I don't think the Norwegian government would have kept uh, been kept on board in the CCS project for so long. Uh, I don't think the um, yeah we have had uh, and still have very large um, R&D uh, programs uh, financed by the government that's been run every year from decades uh, ago that keeps uh, developing young people into experts on various parts of the CCS chain. These things, um, yeah, I, I'm amazed that uh, Norway and Equinor and the government of Norway and many research institutions have managed to keep their focus for three, three and a half decades on uh, this topic. Uh, I'm a little bit amazed, uh, a little bit proud perhaps. Uh, yeah, not without problems, but uh, it's a uh, paradigm shifting kind of thing. It takes time. Uh, a lot of people have thought that this is not worth uh, doing, but sufficient number of people has thought that it is worth doing. So it has happened, but it had taken a long time, of course. Thanks for joining me, Tim. Pleased to be here. You yourself have um, a bit of a broad background in getting involved in international policy conversations. And I'm kind of interested in your background back when you worked with the with the UK government previously around the, the G8. Can you perhaps give us an overview of what the narrative around CCS was uh, and how it's evolved uh, today as the G20 conversations get underway? Uh, thanks. Thanks, Ruth. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for the invite. And I've been very lucky to just be in the right place at the right time, so to speak, that I was seconded into the UK government, Department of Trade and Industry, for six years. And it coincided with the UK presidency of the G8, as it was then. And Tony Blair was the prime minister. And he wanted to make climate change a key theme of the G8 that year, 2005. And he went to the Department of Environment, DEFRA, and said, what's the biggest new thing we can make a difference with? And we just had the IPCC special report on CCS coming out that year. But DEFRA, with a blank sheet of paper on climate change mitigation, said there's this relatively new thing called carbon capture and storage. And so a small team were put together in, in all of the G8 themes and topics, there were other topics as well, but it focused on climate change and on Africa. That was Gordon Brown's priority. And under climate change, um, one of the key themes became carbon capture and storage. So working on that, I must give credit to Matt Webb from DEFRA and Bill Senior, who was seconded in, and myself, who was seconded in. And we worked up five initiatives on CCS. And that, that, this is significant because 
It was the first time that the G8 had prioritised climate change, and it's the first time that CCS had appeared in a G8 uh, initiative communicating uh, agreements as well. So that was quite important because it was putting CCS on the highest political level for the G8 countries, plus the, the UK invited some of the major economies as well. So having to explain CCS from the beginning, from the basics, and then, you know, it was a good exercise and it came out at the end for the, in the Glen Eagles plan of action with five initiatives, um, one of which on capture ready, one on which was on helping developing countries, um, endorsing the carbon sequestration leadership forum, which was already in existence at that point. Um, so that's why, um, yeah, that, that was the start of CCS in these initiatives. Uh, I, after that, the next big one was the G8 in 2008 that Japan hosted. And that's the one where with CCS, they agreed to go for 20 large scale projects by 2010 and with a view to broad deployment by 2020. So obviously we didn't, you know, the world didn't make that, but it started that momentum off uh, that's carried on in different ways uh, since then. So fast forward to a few weeks ago, you uh, you attended the G20 International Seminar on CCUS, which was hosted in India, as we mentioned earlier. India is the is the host president of, of, of G20 this year, rather. What were your key takeaways from the event? Um, I know that you presented. Uh, were you there to just keep a pulse on things, um, or was there a message that you wanted to impart to the stakeholders that were there? So, it, yeah, it was interesting for several reasons, actually. The, the G20 um, CCUS seminar. So, yeah, all credit to India as the presidency of the G20 and the Energy Transitions Working Group that was meeting at that time wanted this uh, CCUS seminar. In, in the G8, G7 as it is now, G20 processes, it's a good, it's good practice to have these sorts of more technically focused workshops with the other G20, G7 countries, G8 countries involved to sow the seeds, to gather inputs, to gather different views from other countries if you're thinking of having initiatives in certain areas. So I found it very promising that India wanted to have one, this, this event on CCUS to start with. So the, the processes for G8 and G20, you, you start off with initiatives, you get lots of soundings in, there's meetings of working groups, your, the civil servants or diplomats are nicknamed Sherpas because you end up at a summit at the end and they go around and there's lots of diplomatic work and effort normally to arrive at the draft texts that are then agreed by energy ministers, climate ministers and the world leaders at the end. So this was a very good way of starting that process off. Also, India um, hasn't been that active on CCS for quite a few years. Um, and so it's very interesting that they chose to do this as well. And after the UK G8 in 2005, the UK government put a lot of effort into uh, helping, trying to help China and India get moving on CCS. With China, that resulted in the NZEC project that got 
UK and European money to coordinate uh, CCS activities in China. But India didn't really um, have that same level of success. Now, India is an interesting country because it's largely coal power based. Uh, half of its CO2 emissions come from coal power. It's challenged, it's a developing country, it's, and it's growing rapidly, and its growth is constrained by electricity provision, and many of its population don't, still don't have electricity. So those are its priorities. And here it is uh, with a new perspective, in my view. And as I looked at this G20 event, I realized that there was two new significant roadmaps out in India on CCUS. Uh, one from the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas, the CCS in the oil and gas sector, and actually naming a CO2 EUR demonstration project they want to proceed with. And then one from this organization called NITI AOG. I think it stands for the National Institution for the Transformation of India. And this is a very high level institution the chairman of which is the prime minister. And this produced in November last year, a roadmap for a policy framework for CCUS across all sectors. And that was the basis and there the input from India into that G20 CCUS event. So all of this coming together for India, and all credit to the presidency for doing this, is an example then for the other G20 countries, because half of them are developing countries that may not have CCS on their radar, so to speak or on their policy agendas for their countries. So um, the fact that the event happened was significant. The background and the inputs to it were significant. Um, and my message there really, I think I gave an update on the outcomes from the UNFCCC recently, COP26, COP27, but I wanted to promote international cooperation primarily on CCUS thinking about giving them material that they can build into an initiative at the end. And I must give credit here to Juho Lipponen from the CMCCUS initiative. He helped NTPC organize the event and the speaker list. And we both had this mindset of a Q&A session at the end, helping to draft ideas that could be used for initiatives in the G20 process going through this year. And I wanted to put in there international cooperation because, as you know, being with the Global CCS Institute, it's a characteristic of CCS. It's very important. It's a larger scale technology. Um, we need this international cooperation. Uh, and there's nice examples we can point to. And as it enables countries who are not moving yet on it to draw upon other countries who are moving, who are leading on it through international cooperation to help them accelerate up the learning curve. Thanks for joining us, Mohammed. Uh, thank you for having me today. Maybe let's begin with the current state of carbon capture and storage uh, in the region. I mean, the reason for the momentum uh, and the scale up of CCS is because energy intensive industries are a big part of the economy in a number of countries in MENA, particularly you know, the kingdom of, of Saudi Arabia, for example. Can you maybe share your thoughts on the importance of CCS um, from a climate change perspective? How needed is it for these these countries and governments to take on CCS? Yeah, I, I think in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, there are lots of heavy industries uh, in the region. 
Uh, also, we see uh, these countries, even the economy is growing more and more. So there is an industrialization revolution coming up in, in these countries. So, for example, the UAE announced that the 10 years would be uh, the industrialization uh, years. So we expect more industries and heavy industry to be uh, added to uh, the portfolio of uh, revenue and export in the countries. Uh, so this is a driver for a CCS technology to decarbonize these current and future industries. Uh, the governments in the region has been uh, pushing and advocate for CCS from the beginning. So uh, like five or six uh, nations included CCS in their uh, indices. Uh, they have also announced their commitments to net zero by 2050 and 2060. The UAE, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar also committed to some certain reductions by 2030. Uh, Egypt and other nations in North Africa, the Middle East also showed some commitment for net zero. Now to achieve this net zero target in the region that couldn't be done without CCS being part of it. And CCS would be essential for the hard to abate industries, as I said, steel, cement, the petrochemical sector, uh, but also eventually on a later stage, it will be integrated with the power sector. Uh, another important element is the hydrogen potential in the region. Uh, the Gulf uh, countries and some MENA countries, they aim to be a leading uh, countries when it comes to hydrogen exports, regardless of the production process, if it's green hydrogen or, or blue hydrogen. And they aim to uh, contribute around 20% of the hydrogen production globally in the years to come. And CCS will also play a, a major role in the blue hydrogen uh, production. So that's another uh, driver for uh, increasing the potential of CCS mm -hmm. in the region. I know that you're based in the UAE, you're in Dubai. This will be the second year in a row that COP is being hosted in the Middle East and, Af and North Africa region. Last year it was in Egypt. Do you think that CCS will be a focus this year compared to years previous? I think it, it is very beneficial to have a COP28 hosted in the region, especially it comes after COP27, which was in Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt. Uh, building on the momentum and what had happened last year, I think we expect more actions to take place in, in this COP28. Uh, the leadership under the leadership of Dr. Sultan al-Jaber and the leadership in the UAE, they want to present this COP28 as the COP of actions, as he stated in his speech during the Sustainability Week. COPs in action, which is very promising, that we expect to see more announcement to actual projects and how we will reach our uh, targets for net zero 2050 and 2060. So it's not just a pledge and planning, but actual actions. And uh, how to do that, the idea is to be inclusive and to have a collective effort from the industries and the governments uh, to achieve that. Now, if I look at the momentum in the region, uh, the level of engagement we have seen last year and we continue to see this year from public entities, uh, private sector, everyone is actively involved in the discussions and the planning for the sustainability. A uh, market for sustainability activities and project is very active in the UAE and the region. Uh, there are many other initiatives will feed in and support having COP28 uh, in the region. For example, uh, the Saudi Green Initiative, 
the Middle East Green Initiative, which involved 21 countries in the region under the leadership of Saudi Arabia, that also will deliver more clean energy and sustainable solutions, including CCS being one of the key areas of focus. So there, having COP in two years in the region has pushed for major uh, momentum for uh, projects and actions. Hi, Alex. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. You mentioned in your paper, the current wave of commercial project development is pushing CCS into new areas and revealing new challenges to identifying potential storage sites. What do you mean by that? <laughs> Basically, the projects to date have largely been either government-funded uh, pilot projects or demonstration projects or very early first mover industrial projects. So they've been able to really cherry pick um, and pick the, I guess, surest sites, the ones where they know it's going to succeed, that there's, they absolutely minimize the, pro the potential challenges. Um, and as we get into more commercial development, of course, the development space gets more crowded and you start citing projects. Um, close to lots of emission sources, which might mean you know, industrial areas, densely populated areas, areas with other competing uses, areas with other storage projects. So you just get more constraints that you have to consider and figure out a way to, to deal with. So that's what I mean. So what are the, what are the different types of approaches to storage uh, development that we're seeing? There's a lot of things being tried and I, it's early days in this industry, and I often liken it to the, the late 90s in the internet, when it was obvious that there was something there, and it had huge potential. But it wasn't yet clear what the business model was. So you may remember, if you went, opened a web browser, you had a choice of search engines. You had Google, and you had Ask Jeeves, and you had Netscape Navigator, and Yahoo, and various others that I can't remember. Um, Lots of people trying lots of things and not at all obvious what was going to win or lose or prevail in the long term. But clear that there was something there. And I would say that we're in very much the same place with CCS now. It's clear that there's something there. It's growing very fast, but there's lots of people, different operators trying different business models and different strategies. So you have things like small projects that are trying to store very locally. You have big government subsidized storage hubs that may be onshore, maybe offshore, um, trying to aggregate lots of emissions from a given area and store them centrally. You have projects like Northern Lights that are actually using ship transport to pick up CO2 at various ports around Northern Europe and take it to an offshore, offshore storage site. What's going to we have talk of uh, sending LNG cargos one way and bringing CO2 back the other way or perhaps a triangle route brings CO2 to a storage site and then return the cargo of LNG. Who knows what's going to prevail in the long term? And it's probably a combination of those things. When it comes to developing storage areas for CO2, you argue that we should consider fetch areas and the associated traps that can be beneficial for storage. Do you mind unpacking that concept for me a little bit? Why would it be useful? The easiest way to explain this is probably by analogy. And 
CO2 is a buoyant fluid. So in the subsurface, it rises. It basically flows uphill until it gets trapped. Um, and my analogy, if we flip this upside down, it looks a lot like water flowing down hills and accumulating in lakes at the bottom. So, you know, everyone knows that lakes can store a lot of water. And if you want to get water, it's easy to stick a bucket in the lake or a pipe in it and retrieve water. So everyone focuses on lakes as sources of water. And bear with me, I may overstate this as an analogy, but imagine that your goal is to store water. Right? Maybe you're in California and you're worried about heavy rains and flooding, or maybe you're thinking about aquifers and sources of fresh water that you could drill for, whatever. Um, point is that your goal is to store it. So you add up the capacity of all these lakes and it's just not enough. It's nowhere near enough. And your great insight is that you could actually store it on the hillsides, right? As rain hits the hillsides, some of it soaks in. And the more you can slow the runoff, the more you can get to soak in and the larger the, the storage capacity of the hill slopes. Basically, that's what we're doing. We're saying you could use the hill slopes here. And in fact, doing so would give you several advantages. If you moved the injection site up the hill slope, you could get some standoff from the legacy wells that are clustered in the lakes because that's where uh, water was easy to produce or in our case where hydrocarbons were producible. Um, you get a lot of flexibility in siting because you're not restricted to the lake itself. You can you know, go to any of the hill slopes and any position on the hill slopes that ring the lakes. And of course you get a vastly increased area so if you can make effective storage out of the slope, then you have greatly increased capacity in addition to these other advantages. So turning it upside down, going back to the subsurface, the hill slopes in this analogy are the fetch areas. They're the drainage cells that feed uh, fluids toward buoyant traps, which are the what we call traps or the lakes in this analogy. Um, those are the places that have been historically tapped for oil and gas. And in the Gulf Coast, pretty much every structural high, uh, every lake has a producing field on it. Uh, many of them have hundreds, sometimes even thousands of old wells in them. So every one of those wells is a hole in a geologic, a proven geologic seal. You can deal with them. We can review the construction and the plugging and abandoning. Um, we can remediate where necessary, and we routinely do but it adds time and it adds cost to the project. So if you can go move away from them down into the fetch area or in the analogy up onto the hill slope, then you can reduce the pressure that hits them and you can reduce the need to review You can and potentially remediate. So you can not only get increased storage capacity, uh, increased flexibility and in where you site projects, but you also reduce the the risk and the cost. Where do you see this concept getting picked up and how quickly do you see it being widely deployed? Yeah, so Gulf of Mexico is definitely going to be the leader with this simply because there's a lot of emissions and a lot of projects moving forward. And this is the way you get them done uh, without going way offshore into much emptier territory. So there are projects in development now that are using this concept. Um, I've worked on several of them. And they're, where are they now? 
they're in the phase of gathering data and filing for permits. So you might see them actually storing CO2 in two years, three years. Sort of depends on how long the permitting process takes because that actually is the, the single longest step in this process. You know, we're developing those CO2 storage sites, but if it's not aligned with the actual getting that CO2 from A to B, there's going to be a missing link. Um, and that would be a hindrance to to actually getting um, projects scaled up. Is that correct? I'm yes. And, and also like the um, time scale is different. So it takes two, three to five years to uh, construct and operate a capture facility, but it takes more than 10 years to develop a storage facility, depending on how much information you have on the uh, storage site. So this is why um, CO2 transport and storage should be developed. It's almost like sooner than, you know, the CO2 capture facility, and this is what's happening uh, with the Nordalite projects in, in Norway. Will CCS become uh, commercially viable enough in the next coming years that by 2050 we'll have the projects that we need? We have seen a definitely a growing momentum for carbon capture utilization and storage application and a lot of support with the public sector leading the way with policy measures that fund CCUS. This is uh, a very positive sign. But both governments and private sector should consider a number of strategies that can help reaching the target of the NZD, uh, so the net zero emissions by 2050 scenario, including the implementation of a broad portfolio of policy measures to stimulate investment, including, for instance, uh, capital grants, market-based framework, low-carbon products, incentives, public procurement. Government should also look into encourage the build out of transport and storage infrastructure. As we mentioned before, they uh, need to be scaled prior to or at the very least alongside CO2 capture projects. New business model can support the deployment of CCUS, so shifting from building standalone food chains, CCUS projects with integrated transport and storage infrastructure to developing multi-user infrastructure. So basically, our overall assessment is that it's possible, it's challenging, but it's possible to reach the goals of the net zero emissions by 2050 target. But there are a number of, um, of strategies and policies that have to be uh, put in place in order to, to reach the target. For more details about this episode and podcast, visit globalccsinstitute.com and head to the Multimedia Library.